a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I am your host of Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're talking about due dates. I know people get a due date, they circle it in their calendar, they tell everyone their due date. It's a big deal, but is it a big deal? I like to think of it more as a due month. So I reached out to Dr. Nicole Calloway-Rankins about due dates. I had the joy of being on her podcast, which is called All About Pregnancy and Birth, and I invited her on my podcast. And I have to tell you, I really like how she practices medicine. I'm kind of gushing over much of the interview because what she has to offer is just so spot on. She goes from a she comes from a place of compassion. She comes from a place of having open communication. She's really a great, great doctor. Let me tell you a little bit more about her. So Dr. Nicole Calloway-Rankins is a board-certified practicing OBGYN and mom of two who empowers first-time pregnant people to feel supported and prepared for pregnancy and birth. Over the last 15 years, she helped more than 1,000 babies come into the world and has demystified pregnancy and childbirth for thousands more women through her five-star rated All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast, her free online birth plan class, and her signature online program, The Birth Preparation Course. She's fantastic. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We bust through how how due dates are determined. Should we be sticking to that? When are When's a good time to even consider induction? What are medical reasons to be induced? What does induction look like? What are some ways to start your labor going if you don't want to have to go into more of a pharmacological option, a medical induction? So she gives some really, really great information. Before we get to that, I just want to thank all of those that are showing up into my online Zoom classes that have heard about classes from this podcast. People pop in all the time and say, oh my gosh, I heard this podcast. I'm here in class. And I just love that we're building our community. It's it's really fantastic. If we're going to say there's a silver lining from this pandemic, it is that we can be a bigger community and support one another. So thank you for showing up in our yoga classes and our workshops. Also, what has busted through the walls is our teacher training. We are now in the middle of our November, December teacher training. And I think 
most of the people, I think 95% of the people do not live in the New York area. They are well beyond. We have people from Canada, from the West Coast, from Europe. It's pretty, pretty exciting to see this community continue to expand and for our prenatal yoga methodology to go into so many different communities. So if you're a yoga teacher and you are really jazzed about prenatal yoga, check out our website, prenatalyogacenter.com to learn about our 85-hour teacher training. And if you're a birth worker or yoga teacher that you don't want to take that deep dive, I've got some other shorter online self-guided courses you can check out. One's called Who's Afraid the Pregnant Yogi? And one is called Teaching the Postnatal Student. So still plenty of options to enrich your own teaching and learning. Okay. I think I've said enough. We're going to take a super quick break and we come back. Please enjoy my conversation with Nicole. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, Nicole. How are you? I am so good. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you. You know, I, as I was setting up my podcast stuff, I was like, oh, I had such a good time coming on your show. And now I get to turn the tables and hear all about you. So yay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And I so enjoyed having you on my show as well. Thank you. So I'm really excited to talk about due dates, because I know that's a hot topic for a lot of pregnant people. They get their due date, they circle it on their calendar, they tell everyone their due date, and then it's like, it's held up. And (laughs) there's a lot (laughs) around that. So I'm really excited. So I guess before we get into that, if you can tell people a little bit about yourself and what drew you to becoming an OBGYN? Sure. So I am a practicing board certified OBGYN hospitalist. So I work only in the hospital. Most of what I do is on labor and delivery, delivering babies. That's like 99% of what I do. And I've been doing that for the past five years now. Before that, I was in academic medicine. Like I initially thought I was going to combine research and patient care, and that was not the right fit for me. So I'm a, a hospitalist. I fell into it because at my last job in in academics, it was like I just had a I don't want to say a disagreement, but it was clear that I wasn't the right fit for them. They weren't the right fit for me, and I was like, I have to go someplace else. And this hospitalist job popped up in town, and I, we didn't want to move because the kids were settled. And gratefully, it's turned out to be one of the best decisions and best thing that's that's ever happened to me. Is often sometimes like you know difficulties in your life are the beginning of getting you to the other side of where you need to be. So, so now that's that, where we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so that's what I do. I love it, love it, love it. I will never 
not, I will retire from medicine as a hospitalist. I love, love my job. And then on the quote unquote side, which is actually another full-time thing that I do is I have a podcast and an online childbirth education class. I know you are busy and your whole world is babies and birth, I which I love. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. And then I'm also married and have two children. So there's that too. You have two girls. Is that right? I have two girls. Yep. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Kids, family, podcast, job. That is, you could definitely have a full plate. Well, I, I am do. just so excited that you carved out a little time for me. So let's just jump right in. So we're going to talk yeah. about due dates. So what is full term mean? Because it, there's a variation, like, you know, some people say like, okay, I'm at my due date, but I gave birth a week early. Like, can we talk about all the variations of full term? Sure, sure. So the first thing I, I want to say about due dates is that I wish we could actually throw out the term due date. It's awful <laughs> because there is, it's, it's a, just an estimate. And I think when we give people a date, they get sort of like that they, they, we don't communicate well enough that it's actually not likely to happen on that date. Mm-hmm. We should probably change to like a due week Month. or give, yeah, or exactly <laughs> like give a, a wider range. So that's the first thing is like, it's, it's an estimate. It is not an exact science. So in terms of the terminology, in terms of full term, preterm, all of that, full term is have, we changed it over time. It used to be considered 37 weeks to 42 weeks was full term. But now we've learned that really every day up until 39 weeks is really important in order to have the best chances for baby to be born healthy. So 37 to 39 weeks is now called early term. Anything before 37 weeks is preterm. And then right around 34-ish, 35, 36 weeks, that's late preterm. So then 37 to 39 is early term, and then 39 to 41 is considered full term. And then uh, 40, um, it's like a lot of terms, 41 weeks to 41 weeks and six days is late term. And then after 42 weeks is post term. That's a lot. I'll put that in our show notes so people (laughs) can see that. Um, But yeah, I think it's helpful to get to really see that wide range. So there, so as you're saying, it used to be when I started studying prenatal yoga, which was 20 years ago, it remember 37 to 42 weeks people consider a term. So now that 37 to 39 is early term. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what would, what is the concerns? It's lung development or what do you do if someone does have their baby 37 to 39 weeks? That's a really good question. So a lot of this came about because once people hit 37 weeks, then sometimes doctors would say, hey, well, if you want to induce your labor, we can go ahead and induce your labor, whether it's for convenience or um, for whatever reason. So doing elective inductions of labor after 37 weeks, because that was considered full term. But then we found that those babies weren't ready and they most, they would have um, trouble breathing would be usually the, the most common complication and they would need to stay in the NICU for a bit when they were born early. Not all the time um, and not even terribly frequently, but enough when you put it across enough births that it's like, hey, we shouldn't be inducing these labors electively, meaning no 
medical reason to do so between 37 to 39 weeks. However, if a baby comes on its own between 37 and 39 weeks, and it, was probably, it was just ready. So even 36 weeks, sometimes babies come a little bit early, but babies that are born where your labor starts on its own between 37 and 39 weeks, that's a different scenario than induction. In that case, babies are fine 99.99% of the time, go home with parents, all of that stuff. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought, but that's good for people to know that if their labor does start, they don't have to like cross their legs and try to keep that baby in. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) Let that baby come. So since we're talking about, you know, given all of these variations, how are due dates estimated? Yes. So we used to use like old school pregnancy wheels. I remember and, those. <laughs> you put the day and then you like go back and put it. It's hilarious. Yes. And there are a few people who still want to hang on to those. They're terribly inaccurate, actually. Uh, so the, the mathematical way that we do it is adding 280 days to the first day of your last menstrual period because roughly full term is, is, and that gets you to 40 weeks. Now, that can be inaccurate if your menstrual periods are irregular. That assumes that you have regular cycles that are 28 days. I don't know why it has to be, this is terrible, but true probably, it has to be a man who thought we could assume that all cycles are 28 days. And everyone ovulates at day 14. Yes. (laughs) So it's totally not the case. So those methods can be definitely inaccurate if you have irregular periods. Now, if you, if you're if your periods are like 26 days or 30 days, then that's not going to like throw it off a, a whole lot. But if you're very irregular, then it will. So we typically now these days do an ultrasound to, to estimate the due date. So we do an ultrasound in the first trimester. That's within the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. That's going to be our, our most accurate way to estimate due date because then we're physically seeing like how far along is this pregnancy at this point. And you're measuring, is it the feet, I can be totally wrong, the femur bone and then also the skull circumference or is that later? No, that's later. So very early in pregnancy, it's crown rump length, which is basically the distance between the top of the head and And the the bottom. Yep. You got it. Yeah. That's the most accurate measurement. Like in those first eight, nine weeks is really, really um, when you can get that earliest measurement, that's great. Really, that early you can figure mm-hmm. it out. That is, yep. oh, I love hearing that. Yep. What are the, and again, I'm throwing some statistics at you that you may not know, but how, so people hold on to the due date and then there's, you know, a lot of pressure on that, especially if someone's starting to go past their due date. How accurate, how not accurate, how often do people actually deliver in the day or so of their due date? Yeah, so especially for first-time moms, you are most likely not to deliver on your due date. Actually, most people, I don't know the exact number, but most people do not deliver on their due date. You'll deliver within like a week or so of your due date for most people, but like on your due date, no. But within a week, yes. So what about when there's pressure, because I hear this from some of my students, to either be induced at 39 weeks or if they go past their due date, and we can, we're saying like a, a week possibly, that mm-hmm. not even hitting 41 weeks or like at 40 weeks and six days. So 
that's, you know, that's a two week span. So what's the logic behind not going past 39? And I know we can, I don't know if I want to open the can of worms of the ride study. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm like circling around and I'm like tiptoeing. I'm like, you hear me over here like, okay, here we go. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm like, oh, are we going to go there? I don't know. We can decide how much you want to go there. Um, and then (laughs) that's a whole big, that's big job. Um, or, or even passing 40 weeks and six days. So can you shed some light on that? Sure. So we've gotten, so we, we got better about knowing that we shouldn't induce early uh, before 39 weeks for any elective reasons. But then we also had some data and studies that showed that the more you get beyond 39 weeks, it increases the risk of complications. So 39 has been decided as this sort of sweet spot for a lot of people where uh, that's like the ideal time for birth to happen. However, those complications are really, I feel like we've kind of taken it a, a bit too far, a lot too far in some cases where people are like, oh, you're 39 weeks. Like you, you really should be induced in order to reduce the risk of the arrived trial was really about a cesarean birth and it like slightly reduced the risk of cesarean birth for first time moms, but it didn't have any impact on outcomes, other outcomes for a uh, baby. And it did reduce the risk of preeclampsia for moms, but um, the cesarean birth is what people really hung on to. But really just at 39 weeks is when people are now starting to say, if you want to be induced, then it's reasonable to be induced If uh, in order to help maybe slightly improve outcomes. Of course, the big bad thing that we worry about the further along you get in pregnancy is stillbirth. That doesn't start to go up sharply until after 41 weeks. So uh, after 41 weeks is when the risk of stillbirth goes up. And even then, it's still low. When you look at the absolute number, the risk of stillbirth is very low for pretty much all women. But like when it happens to you, then that risk is not so low anymore. Right, you know, it's either, you're, yeah, yeah. you're that person. Yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, we every every practice, every provider is a little bit different. I think we've swung a bit too hard towards induction at 39 weeks um, some folks at 40 weeks due date start to get a little antsy. When I was in practice, we would not, we wouldn't induce unless people wanted to. Like some some people want to be induced early for whatever or in, you know for whatever reason they're just tired of being pregnant. But if uh, pregnancy wants to continue, then 41 weeks I uh, would do testing to like look at the baby, make sure everything's okay, and then try to plan for induction between 41 and 42 weeks because there's not a whole lot that we know that we're gaining by continuing pregnancy uh, beyond 41 weeks for sure. And if someone doesn't though, if they don't want to be induced, uh, how do they talk to their care provider about saying, okay, I understand at 41 and six days, things really need to change. Is there any, is there any way they can communicate that and try to buy a little more time? Sure. So I would, I would, um, first have a clear, um, I I don't know. I'm trying to find the right words to say like, why, why is it you, you shouldn't have to defend your decision, so to speak, but think about what is it that you want 
to do? Is it just really important to you that you don't have any medications? Is it important to you that this happens on its own? What is it about not being induced that's important to you? And the reason I say that is because often human beings connect very well on emotions and understanding how people feel. So if you can understand and and be able to communicate like why you feel this way, why this is important to you, then I think that will help. And then the other big thing is there needs to be a negotiation or discussion or however you want to put it about some sort of end point. So it it shouldn't, you can't go into it like, well, I don't want to be induced and I'm just going to wait. We need, you need to set out some sort of um, plan in order to reassess and specific moments to reassess. So if you're saying, you know, I would like to go to 41 weeks and see where things are. I would like to go to 41 and a half weeks and see where things are. When you can do those definite um, points and have a, a specific plan in place to kind of reassess how things are going along with the pregnancy, then that makes it a lot, um, a lot easier and a more, um, you know, not like contentious discussion, if that makes sense. Yeah, because you certainly, you, you have a team there. You don't want your, feel like the care provider is now agitated or like holding a grudge. So you want to have the team, you want to feel supported when it does happen. Exactly. And there should never be any sort of like fear tactics. If you have a provider who's saying things like you're going to kill your baby or... Oh my God. Have you like, heard that? Have you heard that? I've heard people say that where they use very intense fear tactics that I've heard don't fear tactics i haven't heard you will kill your baby oh god oh my god you're, like your baby you know you why would you want your baby to die by you know those kinds of things um you find a new provider if you can and you can certainly do one up until the last minute but hopefully you've gotten a relationship with this person going along that you wouldn't be blindsided by that sort of uh that usually doesn't come out of nowhere but there should be no fear tactics. It should really be a discussion. As long as you know the risk of 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 um, continuing the pregnancy and the benefits, then you are, you know, you can make an informed decision about what works best for you for sure. Really, really like, I just want to highlight about the relationship with the care provider and the lack and not using fear tactics. I feel like I do, I hear that. I haven't heard that strongly, but I have heard things like, you know, um, why would you put your baby at risk? Why would you do that? Mm -hmm. And it's just going to add fear to the, to the pregnant person. And that's not going to help labor start. If that person is literally their adrenaline sky high, because all of a sudden they heard I might hurt my baby. And that just funnels them down this, this guilt of, oh my God, what am I doing? That can, this seems like a horrible, communication with between people. It's absolutely horrible. And no woman wants to hurt her baby. Like we also need to, like nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants the same thing for mom and baby to be healthy. It's just that sometimes we have to have a discussion about how we get, get to that point. So I feel like we can't have a conversation about due dates without talking a bit about induction, which I, (laughs) there was this thing. I'm like, are we going there? Are we going there? Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a super quick break. And when we come back, we're just going to talk a little bit about induction and due dates. We'll be right back. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Okay, we're back. So... Yeah, I didn't know if we'd go down this avenue. There's many things going through my head. But if we're talking about <laughs> due dates and we're talking about, like you said, that if someone's going to approach their care provider and start talking about, okay, 40 weeks and six days, a little past, and they might be thinking, well, why don't I want to? From what I've understood from a lot of my students and, and having been pregnant myself, I wanted to avoid induction because in my mind, and again, please correct me if I was wrong, but in my mind, as soon as I started thinking induction, I just started to feel like there was a cascade down of other interventions that could happen. Um, you know, once you have Pitocin, often someone has an epidural and then there's a lack of movement. And that might be totally game for a lot of people's plan. That might be how they totally see their birth, which is a very valid choice. But other people may say, I really want to be able to move my body and not have as many interventions as possible. So what is the relationship of, of induction and due dates and with induction and further cascade of interventions? Yes. So this is also a really great question. And I think that's the exact conversation that you need to have because it's really going to depend on the the provider and the hospital and the way that they practice and approach their philosophy towards birth. There is without a doubt a possibility that if you're in a practice that is more intervention heavy, yes, if induction may lead to more interventions. It may lead to, you know, using lots of Pitocin or, um, you know, uh, you know, more medications and then getting an epidural and then not being able to move. Yes, that is, that is certainly a valid risk and something that happens. However, we have gotten better and it really depends. You have to have this conversation with your provider. For example, I work at a hospital where, you know, if you say that you want to limit interventions during induction, well, then we can talk about how ways to best do that. So whether it's um, a, not just allowing, but facilitating movement by having a birthing ball by having wireless monitoring so people can move around still during birth, even though things are happening with Pitocin, by not being aggressive with Pitocin, meaning like once labor kind of kicks in, we turn back to Pitocin sometimes or even turn it off if need be. So doing our best to kind of limit those interventions and not um, keep pushing things and like if you want an epidural then not or don't want an epidural then not like really like going all some some folks like to quote unquote crank the pitocin really really go increase it increase it increase it so maybe be a bit more gentler with it you can certainly have an induction where interventions are limited 
It's just a matter of having the right people around you and team to support you in doing that. And the other big key for that is to be patient with the process. You have to have folks who are patient with the process. And by patient, I mean, it can be an induction that's two days or three days or four days. I think the longest I've done is six days. Uh, so you have to be patient with the process. I want you to be my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you lived up here so I could refer everyone to you. No, I think, you know, and it's the, I will say, you know, um, and there are a lot, there are actually more, I think, I think more and more every day doctors are realizing that this is the way we are supposed to practice. So I, I want to say that there is hope. We're not there yet universally as a specialty, but there, I think we're getting better. I'd like to see that more in my area. I'm so glad that you're, that you have some, um, that you're there for the people that you're there for because they get you. And, but I'm, I don't see that working. I see a small handful of doctors, mm. but I do see some pressure from the hospitals to kind of move people along. I remember the very first birth I attended as a doula. I didn't realize how unique it was. It was with a midwife. That tells you also something like that certain mindset. And my client had to be induced between 36 and 37 weeks because she had preeclampsia. So they were, it was like induction, like from scratch. They gave her Cervidome and then she had um, Pitocin and she was really clear with me. She did not want any pain medication, not even a Tylenol. I remember they offered her Mm. Tylenol. She's like, no. And she went through it was pretty much overnight and it wasn't that long. The whole thing was maybe 16 hours and she, it was amazing. The whole thing was unmedicated other than the Pitocin and the midwife said, you know, like, you're not going to see this very often. This is kind of, you know, the unicorn. Uh, but the midwife was super patient. So I think that some, even though it's still 16 hours is still good for a first time parent, but what you're saying about the patience is like really being patient about letting the body start like if you have to be induced or augmented letting letting things continue on their own without being like okay we got to get this baby going you're on pit let's get that epidural i wish i saw that more i feel like i don't hear that enough yeah that's a i agree that it's it's unfortunate and it's true that it's it's we don't do that enough i do think it's in the last few years that we're really starting to come around and honestly a lot of it has come from pressure from birthing people, you know, from um, women, people in the community saying, hey, this is what we want. And then at least in my area, certain hospitals started catering to that and they saw their business booming. Mm. So so, um, so it, it makes sense all around that this is how we should approach things. But yeah, it's it's a tough spot in some places um, people don't have options. I think you can sometimes find like a single provider uh, within a group or a couple of providers to practice at a certain hospital that practice that way. Um, but yeah, it can be tough. But what do you do if you have the doctor on board or the midwife on board, but they're not necessarily there? You know, the the pregnant person can check into the hospital and the care provider may not be there for a good portion of the time, especially if it's like a solo practitioner um, where they might have office hours and they don't come until things are kind of revving up. Then you have the hospital staff that you're having to negotiate with. Yes. Uh, there are several things that you can do. One is be educated so you understand what to expect with labor and birth so you can have an intelligent conversation about 
what things are happening and how to ask questions, the benefits, the risk, alternatives to things. So you really need to do some good childbirth education so you have that foundation. Uh, your partner who is there with you should also have done that childbirth education so they can advocate for you and help advocate for you on your behalf if need be. So you need a support person there who can really help advocate for you um, and sort of protect your space, be the person to say like, um, hey, we need five minutes to talk about this, those kinds of things. Someone who can be exceptionally helpful is a doula. (laughs) (laughs) So if you can get a doula then one who is um who who work who you can um what's the word connect with who you've had a chance to really feel like they're going to be in your corner as well not all doulas feel comfortable kind of stepping into that advocacy role like within the hospital sometimes um i think it really kind of depends on the person and their personality but they can definitely be there as the support and help advocate for you as well. I mean, doulas are shown by research to reduce the need for pain medication, increase the chances for vaginal birth, which of course decreases the risk for cesarean birth. Um, just strong evidence that that type of support is extremely beneficial. So if you can get a doula, then do so. Oh, yes. I'm going to just put that, highlight that, get a doula, get a doula. All right. So if somebody is starting to negotiate with some extra time and the care provider says, okay, yeah, let's have a little extra time and they want to do a stress, uh, a non-stress test. Can you talk a little bit about the, the testing post the official due date? And if they're going a little bit past 40 weeks and six days, like what are, what's the care provider looking at? Sure. So what, and every, the, we don't always practice consistently within obstetrics. I, I would not do that type of testing until 41 weeks. Some people do it a little bit sooner than that at 40 weeks and four days or five days. But what it is, is we're just trying to look at the health of the baby. And we do that by putting um, you on the monitors and looking at the baby's heartbeat. And we're looking for some specific things in the heartbeat. The baseline, what's called the baseline level something called variability, whether or not that's kind of like, does it squiggle up and down on the monitor? We want to see lots of squiggly up and down and then periods where it's not dropping too low. So we have some specific criteria that we look for. That's called a non-stress test where you get on for at least 30 minutes and look at the heart rate for that period of time. If the heart rate alone for the NST looks reassuring and reactive, that is... It's very unlikely that that baby's going to be in any distress for the next week, actually. So that gives us really good reassurance that baby is going to be okay. It's not 100%, but it's, it's really good reassurance. Now, just the NST alone is good. But if you combine that with looking at the fluid around the baby, then that's even more reassurance. So when babies get to be under stress, then one of the first thing or the placenta starts to be given out. It's not working quite as well anymore. It starts to get older. When it's not working as well, when baby is maybe under a little bit more stress, they don't make as much urine, which is contributes to the amniotic fluid and the amniotic fluid will go lower. So when we see that the amniotic fluid is lower, then that is a sign that the baby may be starting to, is the placenta is not working as well. I shouldn't say under like a significant amount of stress, but that's the first sign that we see that 
we could be headed down a stress pathway um, if the amniotic fluid is low. So those are the two things we look at, the heart rate tracing and the fluid around the baby. If the, flu- if the heart rate's fine, but the fluid's a little low, can the pregnant person say, hey, can I have a day, hydrate myself, rest, do an Epsom salt bath, kind of see if that helps replenish anything? Yeah, that's reasonable. Sometimes people come into the hospital even and get IV fluids to try to bring up the level of the amniotic fluid. So that's certainly reasonable, reasonable, but I wouldn't wait more than 24 or 48 hours at the longest. Good. This just so people know their options. This is really good. Mm-hmm. So you started to talk a little bit about some of the risks. So 40, we're saying like past the technical due date, not technical, like the one that everyone has in their calendar. Uh-huh. Past that, we've got not a lot of risk. And then you hit 40 weeks, six days. What happens after that? If you can be more specific. Sure. And actually there's the risk of the pregnancy continue to go up like all along. It's just that towards the end, it goes up more. So the risk of stillbirth starts to creep up as you get towards the end of pregnancy. And it stays, still stays low, but then it takes a sharp increase after 41 weeks. Like, so that's where the we stats? get stats. Do you happen to know? <laughs> I'm throwing this out. You can say no. I mean, no, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, and that's a, a good question. Since I don't do prenatal care, I don't remember those numbers so much anymore, but, um, it's, it's well less than 1%. I can tell you that it's low. So it's like a point oh, like as an example, it may be like a, a 0.05 to a a 0.075. You know, it's 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 a big increase, but the that's the uh, and I'm getting all statisticy relative risk of it. The absolute number is still low. It's okay. just that overall, it, it's kind of like the risk um, as a as a big example. Like at, at 39 weeks, it may be one in 1,000, and then when you get to 41 weeks and maybe five in a thousand. So it's still low overall, right. but it's just gone up quite a bit. Hopefully I'm not confusing people. No, that, like, I mean, it makes total <laughs> sense. But like when you said sharp increase, all of a sudden in my brain, I just saw like this chart that just like shot up like oh, 20%. Yeah, no, it's okay. not, yeah, it's not even, it's just that if you plot it out on a graph, it's like, it, it looks like it's going up a, a lot relative to where it, it's been. So that's the biggest risk is that we worry about is, is is stillbirth, but also the risk of preeclampsia will go up as you get further along in pregnancy. That typically is able to be well managed, but the risk of preeclampsia will go up the further along as well. The risk of the baby being big goes up the further along you get in pregnancy. Uh, so, because as you might imagine, the baby staying in longer has more time to grow, mm-hmm. and a big baby can increase. Um, some certain challenges during birth. Yeah, the shoulder dystocia I know is the big, big mm-hmm. scary one. For yeah, preeclampsia, yeah. how quickly does that show up? Wouldn't it be, I mean, is it something that can happen really quickly? Because people are seeing their care providers pretty often, getting their blood pressure checked, getting their urine checked. Um, like how quickly could that pop up? That's the thing about preeclampsia. It can pop up at any time. So today you can be fine and then your next visit you're, it can start to show up then. So it can really pop up at any moment but very if, quickly, if actually. people know the signs like swelling, headaches, flashy lights, would that, is that something mm-hmm. they should keep in their mind as they're around their due sure. date? Every, every, every person should keep that in mind 100%. So yes, headaches, 
um, visual changes like uh, flashing lights or spots, pain in the belly, especially in the upper part of the belly, that's a more sign of a severe preeclampsia. If you've had a sudden increase in weight gain over a short period of time, so you're retaining fluid all of a sudden, that can be a sign of preeclampsia developing. One of the ones that we don't, uh, I don't think we emphasize enough is that you start to think, oh my goodness, you know what? I just don't feel right. Something, I feel off. Something feels, you know, I'm not, I can't quite put my finger on it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that be the, the symptom or the thing that triggers or, or gives us a sign that preeclampsia is happening. I've had students that I have, you know, I have them week after week, sometimes several times a week. I've been the one that I've seen like you look puffy, not just like, you know, that's like a pregnancy puffy, especially during the summer. But then there's like a doughboy puffiness like yes. that, yeah. you know, it's like a different puffiness. I don't know how to describe that. And mm-hmm. I'll casually be like, so how are you feeling? And I try to make myself kind of like the big fool. I'm like, I'm probably overreacting. I'm probably right. just being the crazy person, <laughs> but I'd love for you to check with your care friend. It's probably me, you know, being all crazy. And, and some people have had that. And, you know, if you don't know what to look for, it can really serve to be a problem. Yeah, oh, absolutely. More for sure. For sure. All right. So, so say somebody is kind of hovering around that possibility of having a medical induction, but they don't, they really want to avoid uh, pharmaceutical options. So what are some non-pharmaceutical options that you might recommend if they're trying to stay away from the cytotech or the Pitocin? Right. Yeah. So um, castor oil may help. And that's it. There's some evidence, research evidence that it may help. We have varying like ways that we do it. I would tell people to take a big like tablespoon or a big spoonful and like mix it in some peanut butter or ice cream and then take that. And um, you can a few hours later, four to six hours later, take it again. It may cause diarrhea or like really intense sort of GI stuff. And we think that that's what may help stir up labor. Um, I, I'm not, I shouldn't laugh, but I have a friend when she was pregnant and I said, Oh, you know, just take a little bit of castor oil, see if that'll help you get started. She took it to the extreme and How took a lot she of castor oil. She <laughs> almost like a quarter cup of castor oh. oil. Poor thing. She was like <laughs> pooping her guts out. And the nurses were like, why did you tell your friend to take all the castor oil? Did it <laughs> start said, labor? Oh yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> so it will work, but you just don't have to take that much of it. Like a little bit is good. Uh, acupuncture is something that may help if you can find an acupuncturist who knows and is uh, familiar with working with pregnant people, then an acupuncture may help. Um, sex may help to bring on labor. We think that it may uh, in- increase prostaglandin, so that may help. Nipple stimulation is something that we don't do as much and we don't have as great uh, of data as how to how to do it the right, the best, most effective way. What's the but, concern about it? Because isn't it just releasing oxytocin? It is, but I believe there's been some studies that if you do it too much and it causes like too many contractions like back to back, then essentially like the baby doesn't have time to rest in between in a sense. So it's like too much squeezing. So I know for sure that you want to do it like just on one breast 
and not both at the same time. Um, some ways that I've seen people do it are like 15 minutes with the breast pump on one side and then take a break and then do 15 minutes on the other side. Um, so nipples, uh-huh, go ahead. I was just thinking, um, that's if they have their breast pump. I had a, I had a doctor call that shining the apples. Um, but what if they're, <laughs> she's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> shining the apples. I remember that very clearly. So what if they're already in labor and it's just kind of stalling a little bit? Is it still a concern to do nipple stim then? Not that we know of. I would just say that hospitals just don't have a lot of experience with it. Okay. Yeah, so no, not that we know that it's, and actually that's probably the best place to do it because you're in the hospital. You can be on the monitor. You can always stop if anything happens. We can look and, and watch and see. I would just say that we just don't have a lot of experience with it. So I've only had like a handful of people do it in the hospital, but certainly, yeah, it's certainly worth a try. So, okay. So there's castor oil. Would the person, this is all, this is the advice I've always given my students and clients is you wouldn't want to do castor oil unless you knew the cervix was ready to go. Cause if that cervix is still long and hard and posterior, then you're just pooping a lot. Would you want to suggest that they know their cervix is pretty effaced and soft or is it not well, make I a think, difference? I think, well, actually there, there's a time I want, I want to say one small study, um, that show that castor oil can actually help ripen the cervix oh. as well. So there's like not, there's not oh, many um, downsides to it. Yeah. Except all the pooping yes, um, <laughs> yes, yes. and the dehydration, and then, they can get dehydrated. Yes, exactly. Um, the other things that we can do that are not pharmacology are stripping your membranes that may help induce labor. So that is a process where two fingers, you have to be somewhat dilated in order to do it, but um, one or two fingers and a vaginal exam and we kind of I'm sitting here like people can see me. I'm actually doing the, <laughs> the motion while I'm sitting at my desk. But it's like you take two fingers and move them around in a circle uh, inside the cervix and kind of help remove the, or it's not remove, like separate the membranes from the lower uterine segment. And that may help uh, labor get started. That re- does that produce prostaglandins? Is that what happens? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what we think. Yeah. And honestly, none of us, I should say, nobody knows exactly what starts labor, like what that button is. So we throw all the things that we know at it. Whoever figures out the exact right or, you know, actual thing, but we think it's prostaglandins. That's so fascinating. I was thinking about the sex because of if if someone has a male partner, the semen has prostaglandins, but then I was also thinking the orgasm's oxytocin. So that could help. For sure. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We love our oxytocin. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely true. And then the other thing that is not a medication is what would be considered a, a pharmacology or, or sorry, a mechanical method of dilation is oh, the a balloon. Foli- the foliage. Yeah, I didn't even think yep. of that. Yeah. Oh, describe so that. It's, yeah. So it's a balloon where we fill it up with fluid. It's a, there's two different types. There's one that's made specifically for labor. It's called a cook balloon and it's two balloons. One goes just inside the uterus, one in the vagina, or we can use a catheter that we would normally use to drain the bladder, something called a Foley catheter. You can use a larger one of those and that just has one balloon and you fill the balloon up with fluid. And it just stays there for roughly up to 12 hours. If it falls out before, then it's fine. But you put that balloon inside the cervix, into the uterus. You fill it up with fluid. And it just provides a constant pressure to slowly open up 
the cervix. And so we call it a mechanical dilator. So that doesn't involve any medication. It's just the balloon catheter that's there. More and more practices are doing that at home where you can get the balloon placed in the office at the end of the day and then come back the next day, the next morning in order to get things started in the hospital. Okay. I'm told that. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> they're getting, the, sorry, if I've seen the Foley balloon used in the hospital mm-hmm. and that is when I've seen it with someone already starting to have contractions. So if someone's going home with it, starting to open their cervix, are they having uh-huh. contractions? Some, some people do. Some people don't. It really, it, we don't have a good idea of how to predict, but it's really just the pressure that's there that just sort of slowly opens the cervix over time and helps to ripen it and get it in a better, better position for labor. Okay. So it's nice. It's so, slowly opening. It's in a good position, mm-hmm. but you still mm-hmm. need the contractions to push the baby down. Correct. So then when you come in the next day, you get the, the, catheter taken out and then either we can start Pitocin then or uh, start uh, or do a, or Cytotec even, but usually by then, usually we're going to do Pitocin or if you don't, if you want to avoid Pitocin, we could break your water would be the other option, but then it's, it's open enough and then you start the Pitocin the next day to get the contractions going. I love learning new things. This is exciting. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. So, <laughs> so we've <laughs> talked about a few reasons someone may need, may want to consider induction for, as they get near their due date. So we're talking about low fluid with a, a challenged heart rate of the baby, um, uh-huh. concern, the preeclampsia. What are other reasons that someone's hitting their due date or past their due date? And we talked about the increase of stillbirth. Are there other reasons that someone might want to consider an induction for circling around their due date or um, consider not or consider waiting? Yeah, it's really an individual choice. There's, there's, the other the the reason I would say um or, or I would say how about this like give people permission that it's okay if you want to be induced like sometimes I feel like people get worried like oh I shouldn't get induced I don't want to be induced but maybe it's that you have family coming maybe you have work commitments maybe you are just sick and tired of being pregnant <laughs> if you want to be induced anytime after thirty nine weeks then you can certainly have that discussion. You should want to wait until your cervix is favorable if you can. Mm. So because that's going to increase the chances of the induction being successful. And I will also say that most often labor induction is successful. So most often it results in a vaginal birth. You just have to be patient with the process. But other conditions, depending on your own circumstance, that are a medical reason to be induced, of course, would be like diabetes or hypertension and those kind of things. But as far as elective induction of labor, the big things that we worry about is, is stillbirth and because of the ARRIVE trial, it may slightly decrease your risk of cesarean birth. It's like 19% versus 21% or 22%, something like that. So not a huge reduction. But just kind of piggybacking on what you said, if someone's being induced, you have to really have the team be patient. So if they're in a hospital situation where they're expecting a lot of progress pretty quickly and they're not being patient. Could that then, instead of it with the arrive trial saying, okay, it slightly decreases cesarean, if they're, which if I remember reading them, be like, they're giving them a lot of space to let their body open. 
some hospitals are going to want to push them along. Could that then actually lead to cesarean if they're saying, oh, you know, slow and steady, it's really not going fast. You know, you're kind of stalling out. Baby might be too big. So you have to really have that conversation, I'm guessing, ahead of time. Absolutely. Yes. Like that preparation is is key. Like one of the things that I say that a birth plan, what a birth plan really is, is it should be an opportunity for you to discuss your wishes for your birth while you're still pregnant. Like if you're discussing it once you get to the hospital, that is too late. Yes. You want Not a good time to negotiate. <laughs> no. You want to have that as something to use to discuss what you want, how that fits, and how that person practices, how the hospital practices, and how that fits into what you want for your birth. That's what a birth plan really is. It is not a sheet that you print out off the internet and bring to the hospital. It should be something to start off that discussion that needs to happen during the pregnancy. Oh, yes. I love everything you said. Okay. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. <laughs> and when we come back, if you can offer one final tip or piece of advice for a new or expectant parents, we'll be right back. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right, you've already given so many great pieces of information. I'm so excited about this conversation. What is one final tip or piece of advice for new or expectant parents? Oh, that is a tough one. Um, I would say, let's see, uh, during pregnancy, be sure to take some time to educate yourself. That is so, so, so important. We've gotten away from childbirth education and we really need to get back to it because it's going to be the foundation to help you advocate for yourself. And then if, and then here I go sneaking in another piece of <laughs> advice. <laughs> I would say once your, your child is here, uh, tr- you will figure it out. Like it's going to seem crazy. Nothing can quite prepare you what it's like to have a tiny human being that you are suddenly responsible for. Uh, I remember my first daughter was a preemie and the, she had surgery after she was born. She was oh, in the goodness. NICU, all this stuff. She's fine now. She's about to turn 13 in a few days. And the doctor was like, Oh, you guys are smart. Like, you'll be fine. If she, if anything looks, looks wrong, like, you'll just bring her back. And I was like, What are you talking about? Are you crazy? Like, I'm supposed to take it. I know I'm a doctor, but come on, like, stop it. What about this is a human being? So you go through all those, like, Oh my God, I can't do this. I can't do this. But let me tell you, you can do this. You will figure things out. Uh, and, and you will make it happen. Oh, that is such good advice. I do like hearing that even as a doctor, you're like, what? I'm taking this baby? Huh? What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally like when she got discharged, the the neonatologist was like, um, you should, you guys should go out to the movies because she's going home on Monday. We were like, what? Huh? You want us to take care of this person? And I will say, even as we're wrapping up, I even still, when she got home, I freaked out. Yes. I, <laughs> I, we, I, I drove her. I had my husband. I, she threw up once and I thought I was too much. We drove to the pediatrician at the beginning of a snowstorm because I was like, oh my God, what is going on? This is terrible. What's going to happen? So you have those moments, but you figure it out. 
Oh, that is so reassuring for all the parents that are not doctors to hear that even a doctor has those moments of panic. Oh, where can people find your work? Cause you really put such good information out. Oh, thank you. So my website is drnicolerankins.com and my podcast is called All About Pregnancy and Birth. And you can find me on Instagram is my favorite social media platform. That's where I hang out the most. And you can find me there at Dr. Nicole Rankins. Yay. And I hope everyone listens to your podcast. It's really good. I mean, I kind of took a deep dive into it. I listened to many, many, many. It's really good. So thank you for the work that you put out. Thank you for, I'm hoping, inspiring other care providers to practice with this open-hearted way that you do. It's I'm just so happy that your community has you. And I wish more people had you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, enjoy your afternoon. Thanks so much. Same to you. Thanks. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.